This podcast may have explicit content and also has this implicit request. If you follow me on Twitter, why not follow the gist at Slate Gist? It's Wednesday, August 14th, 2019 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Donald Trump has so many horrible things, so many empirically, unquestionably horrible things, liar, bully, ignoramus. But now we have to try to hang a harder-to-prove appellation on him, racist. I mean, he says, does racist things, so if the hood fits. But not just racist. Here's Beto O'Rourke on CNN. Do you agree with that? Do you think President Trump is a white nationalist? Yes, I, I do. And again, uh, from some of the record that I just recited to you, the, the things that he has said, both as a, a candidate uh, and then as the president of the United States, this cannot be uh, open for, for debate. Well, Trump is on the record saying, I don't know what's so wrong with nationalism, and he obviously has no problem with whiteness, so maybe white nationalist seems fair. I think we could prove that. Then on MSNBC, O'Rourke was asked a slightly different version of the question. You've been very clear that you believe the president is a racist. Is the president a white supremacist? He is. He, he, he's also made that very clear. O'Rourke is not alone in saying that Trump or agreeing that Trump is a white supremacist. Pete Buttigieg, Elizabeth Warren, and Andrew Yang, when asked, is Trump a white supremacist, said yes, he was. Tom Steyer just volunteered it on Twitter. Bernie Sanders said yes also. One of your 2020 rivals, uh, Congressman Beto O'Rourke, told me this morning that he believes President Trump is a white supremacist um, or a white nationalist. Do you agree? I do. Now, here's the problem. One, the problem is we have a president who's a racist. That's a big problem. And a nationalist is at the very least the wind beneath the wings of many a white supremacist. And maybe, depending on the definition, is a white supremacist. I'm fine with calling him something like a white supremacist. But here is the problem I was getting at. White supremacy is not one thing. It's two related but quite distinct things. In the wake of the shooting in El Paso and other arrests about supposed temple bombings and an actual temple shooting, white supremacy is in the news. And enclaves of white supremacy online and in real life are being investigated by the FBI. At the same time, there is a parallel definition of white supremacy, which is the same phrase, but doesn't mean Klansman or David Duke supporter. It means everyone, basically all of us. All of us, it is the background condition in this society. White supremacy, the definition comes from critical race theory and is very much on the minds and the lips of progressives. This is from the Secret Feminist Agenda podcast. White supremacy is this, this all-encompassing and totalizing system. It's the system that we live within. And here is the Church of the Larger Fellowship podcast. And then I spent quite a bit of time at the beginning of the service as a white minister speaking to white congregants about the shame response that comes when you hear words like white supremacy and how to understand that shame response as a response to internal trauma that comes from the impact of white supremacy on white people. The Unitarian Universalists had a national white supremacy teach-in. They weren't trying to tell you how to shoot up a temple. No, here's how Reverend Krista Taves talked to her congregation about the issue of white supremacy. You know, we're not, I'm not asking you, I'm not telling you that we are bearers of white supremacy to make you ashamed. 
you have nothing to be ashamed of because we are all oppressed by this system. We've all been indoctrinated. In this definition of white supremacy, white supremacy isn't the outlier. It's not the most horrific manifestation of racist hate. It is omnipresent, the background condition. The same phrase either means the worst thing a white person could be or a thing that every white person is. Wow. One analogy of white supremacy among those who use it to mean white societal advantage is a fish in water. And you might not know that you benefit from white supremacy just like the fish might not know he's swimming in water, might not realize it. But the other definition defines the water as poison. So white supremacy is either life-giving H2O or it's arsenic. Maybe it's both at the same time. Perhaps some of the academics who developed the white supremacy defines all of our society definition of white supremacy chose the term specifically to implicate us all or all us white people. Well, mission accomplished. But since it also does mean violent extremist, it is, might I suggest, over implicating. Is Trump a white supremacist? Yes, says Beto O'Rourke, Pete Buttigieg, Warren Sanders, Tom Steyer. But by this other definition, well, so are they too. They're at least beneficiaries from white supremacy. This has created the bizarre situation of putting critical race theorists in agreement with Donald Trump. No, you're the real racist. No, you are too, people accusing me of white supremacy. You can even understand why some people who might be Donald Trump critics think the charge of white supremacy is a little too far. Maybe they're people of goodwill. Maybe they're a little older. Maybe they're not imminently acquainted with how the phrase is used in academic jargon. They just think that this charge is essentially saying, is Donald Trump a Klansman? And they say, well, that's a little too far. All the Democrats are agreeing that he's essentially in a hate group. One more point. When we talk of Muslim extremism or Islamic terrorism, care was taken, at least among responsible public intellectuals and members of the media and leaders, care was taken to make very clear that Islamic extremism was the exception within Islam. But the reverse is true of white supremacy. Many of the same intellectuals want us to know that white supremacy very much describes all of American society. Maybe they would say, oh, not the white supremacy of the shooter, but the white supremacy of the background condition. But it is the same phrase. Maybe there's a different term needed to describe racially motivated killers. Maybe a more distinct term should be adopted by the academics. But right now it is a pretty confusing situation. And I don't blame anyone except Trump and the white supremacists, which means everyone who acts the most egregiously within our society or else our society itself. Great. On the show today, a spiel about a beloved TV show of, I don't know, someone else's youth, not mine. Pretty horrible youth you must have had, scary even. But first, John Hickenlooper is running for president and may just be running for a position he actually has a strong chance of winning U.S. Senator from Colorado. So he spoke to the governor in Iowa a few days ago. Now, when you listen, know that a possible Senate run was in the back of my mind, but I didn't want to waste his time by asking, are you running for Senate? And he would just give me the same denial he's been giving everyone else. In fact, that exact same thing happened after his speech on the stump. He, he says, I'm laser focused on the task at hand. So what I did was I asked him about some of the structural differences between being a Washington insider and being an outsider. And as you listen, consider this. 
given the insights that he gives, consider that maybe a presidential run was actually the smartest and most attention-getting move he could have pulled to make an actual run for Senate from Colorado. Hmm. That, by the way, is the subtext. I now give you the text of the former governor of Colorado, John Hickenlooper, and me. So we're here with Governor Hickenlooper. Let's just start in on a big issue of the day. A couple days ago, there was a massive raid in Mississippi and over 600 workers who were said to be here illegally were detained. They may be deported. You probably saw the pictures and saw the video of the crying children. How would such uh, an enforcement action look different under a Hickenlooper administration? Well. You, we wouldn't need that enforcement action because I'd make a top priority to go out there and finally get comprehensive immigration reform done. This is the first time in my lifetime. I mean, right now we have, uh, somebody's telling me, 7.5 million job openings and only 6.3 million people looking for jobs. So we don't have enough workers as it is. We shouldn't be deporting people. We should give everyone a, a visa. If they're here working, give them a visa so they're working legally, make it for 10 years, give them, they can negotiate later if they need an extension. They, they broke the law so they can't get right in line and, 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 and apply for citizenship right away. There's gotta be some penalty. You figure out what that is. But we do need to secure the border. We need an ID system that works. We do have to hold businesses accountable. But let's not have any of this nonsense of we're gonna keep deporting you know, willy-nilly all these people when we're, we are short workers. Last, last year in Colorado, during the harvest, we, for the first time in my lifetime, we left fruit and vegetables on the ground. The, the, they didn't have the manpower, the, the people power to harvest the, the, the product. So under a Hickenlooper administration, you'd enforce the law, you'd protect the border, but you know people do get in here, and if they are working, for how long would we not go after them? For six months, for a year? Once they got a job, they'd get to stay then forever? I, I think that, that once you do comprehensive border reform, if you incorporate and make it fair, yeah. so you're not deporting everyone, and you hold businesses accountable, right? So if they're well, paying- Well, that was part of this, right? If, yeah, exactly. If, if they're paying people under the table, right now, businesses are almost forced to do that. The penalty's relatively low, and they got a business to run, and, and, and they cannot find workers. Again, last, last fall in Colorado, uh, fruit pickers out on the in Palisade and on the West Slope they could not, they offered 20 bucks an hour. They could not find people to harvest their crops. And, th and then you can't compete anymore with, with crops grown in, in Mexico or South America. There's got to be a, 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 a middle ground where we have workers that come in, do their job, they get to go back to where their homes are. Most of these uh, undocumented uh, residents would rather go back and live with their families, you know, in, in, in Mexico or, or Brazil, right? If they had the choice. That's why I'm saying comprehensive immigration reform includes making it so that businesses are not tempted to pay people under the table. So what would happen to ICE then? DHS would exist. The border would be enforced. ICE is a seven and a half billion dollar a year, 20,000 person agency. What do they do? Well, I mean, think about it. If the system actually worked, so people obeyed the law willingly, which is how laws are supposed to work, we'd have seven and a half billion dollars to look at Maybe we'd put five or seven hundred million dollars a year into the economy of, of Guatemala and El Salvador and Honduras so that we actually are helping those communities become law-abiding 
and, and safe so that people aren't trying to run for their lives with their families. So you're redistributing the ICE budget. Does that mean you'd abolish ICE? <laughs> I, I, think, I think ICE would shrink yeah. naturally down to a fraction of its size. Let's As say, ice does. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's a great metaphor now that you mentioned it. Like real ice on a hot day, it would shrink down to a much, much, much smaller size. How does America, let's start with your state, but how does America get something like comprehensive gun control passed? Well, I think you start uh, with the blocking and tackling of, of the foundations, right? So in Colorado, we're a purple state. We still were able to get universal background checks passed and nobody talks about repealing it anymore. Uh, we passed limited magazine capacities, we passed uh, red flags this last year. I think you take those are the basic building blocks, you go to a couple other purple states, a couple red states. You know, when you get, with universal background checks, when you get the local statistics, so in Colorado, population five million people, in 2012, we only got to half the gun purchases, but there were 38 people who tried to buy a gun, who applied for a background check, and we stopped them. That implies that there were another 38 people that applied to buy a, that, want, that bought a gun and didn't apply for a background check, right. and they were able to buy a gun. When you give those statistics to Republican business people, they go nuts. They don't want anybody to shoot their kids or shoot themselves. Gun reform in Colorado came in fits and starts a little bit after Aurora, though. It was it was a battle. We we, we waited a few months and let the the community process the loss, uh, but then we went right out in 2013, and and again. The, the Rocky Mountain Gun Owners Association, the NRA, came after us. The NRA went out through the, through the Rocky Mountain Gun Owners Association. They said, if any Republican supports universal background checks, we will not only deny that Republican funding, funding for any future campaign, but we will make sure there's a well-funded primary opponent in right. their next election. Well, no wonder I couldn't get a single Republican vote. Every single Republican business person, the people I served on boards with, the civic leaders, all, all these Republicans, every one of them supported universal background checks. It was just the, basically almost like extortion that, that the Rocky Mountain gun owners and the NRA, their trade associations, their job is to do whatever they can to help their members do better. Well, in, in, the, in the case of the NRA, that means they gotta sell more guns. How important is it to get the regular gun owner to agree with you, or other theory of governance, that's nice if it can happen, but even without it, you just have to elect Democrats who are in favor of this legislation, and that's how you get it through. It's not about making the, it's not about finding a middle ground or making the other side see your point. Well, it's both, though. I think in this country, we've got to, we cannot give up on trying to get to bipartisan solutions. And, you know, you look at how much needs to be done around climate change, I mean, how much is going to need to be done around health care reform? If those issues become polarized, polarized so that there's a Republican solution and a Democratic solution, we're doomed to failure in both cases. Do you think on guns again, do you sense that the salience of that issue has changed? Oh, yeah. So after Parkland and those young kids came out with such courage, I think that those images, finally, we had really positive images that, that were, you know, translated in the, in, in the media so that... Americans all over the country said, huh, look at those kids and look what they've been through and what, listen to what they're saying. And I think that started a, a momentum and it's been fueled by the fact that we're having almost one mass shooting per day, all right? We're getting six and a half shootings, mass shootings per week. That's crazy. If you, when you were governor, did you have this conception where you said, look, if you do the polling, many, maybe even most Coloradans are on my side, but if you look about the people who wear this is their number one issue and they care about it, then the gun, the gun lobby has convinced the gun owners to care about it a lot more than 
Democrats or Hickenlooper voters. Well, the, the gun lobby did the best they could, yeah. but we polled it, it was 90%, right? 62% Republicans support universal background checks. So that's why, pick that fight is what I say. I, I go talk to other governors, uh, pick that fight where, because you know nationwide it's almost 90% now. People, why should we allow dangerous criminals to be able to buy, you know, these weapons of, 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 of slaughter? It's crazy. But you still have open carry in the state, right? Yeah, so and, far. And people walking down the streets in, say, Denver. I mean, there was an incident a couple years ago where just saw him and no one could stop him. And he shot some people. And then there was another incident where similar set of circumstances and he was law-abiding. Probably been a lot of those circumstances. Is that something that you're looking at, open carry? Yeah, I think that, that again, I, I would argue we require people to take a, to study and take a test and get a license before they're allowed to legally operate a motor vehicle, right? I think people should have to study and take a test to get a license to be able to own and, and safely store firearms, right? I think that's long overdue. I agree, but why doesn't the state of Denver, where you were governor, agree? The state of Colorado, you mean? Uh, yeah, that's right. It's bigger. <laughs> Sorry, Colorado Springs. Sorry, Puebla. <laughs> um, uh, you know, all these things, I mean, the great social victories in history were built up upon the ashes of many failures. And this has been a struggle because there's so much money involved. As, as you can imagine, when you're talking about a whole industry that is very organized and very well funded, it's a steep hill, but it doesn't mean you quit. Do you sense in your, in the, your time in public office that the nexus of power has moved or national attention has moved to Washington to such a degree where it used to be that senators were at a disadvantage running for president and governors had an advantage, but now everyone's paying so much attention to D.C. Maybe it's hard out there for a governor or a former governor. Well, it's much harder than it was. If you go back over the last 125 years, go back to 1900, no incumbent president has ever lost to a senator, ever. Right? It's always been governors or former governors. And yet two things are happening now. One is that politics has become entertainment. So people are watching cable news all the time on both sides. And if you're in Washington, you're in the center of it and, and it's easier. That's where all the, 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 the largest part of each news bureau is located, either right. New York or, or DC. So the, the senators and the, and the congressional representatives are, they're learning how to do those 20 second sound bites. 30-second soundbite. So that's one advantage. Right. And then the financial laws, which the U.S. Senate and, uh, and Congress passed, right? If I have excess campaign money left over from my last uh, election as governor, let's say I've got 4 or $5 million, I can't use any of that to run for president. Whereas a senator, a sitting senator who's going to go back and run for Senate again, gets to take their 5 or in some cases $10 million, and they get to go out and use it to buy email lists and get small donors, and suddenly they've got... They've got 100,000 and 120,000 and 150,000, and in some cases, 500,000 small donors that essentially they purchased with leftover money from campaigns. That's not fair, it's, it's what it is, but the rules for running for president are being made by Congress, and they haven't been entirely focused on trying to make them fair. Okay, so there was, and I think it was uh, Mayor Buttigieg who said it, no matter what position we take, we're going to get labeled as socialists. However, do you believe that if you do take a position that maybe is closer to socialism, the stain will be deeper? That even though there are so many bad faith arguments that will be lobbed at you, if there is some truth to that, that will hurt more than if, you're, if what the party is doing is nothing, say on healthcare, is nothing to do with socialism. Two things. First, if we're not careful, I mean, they are definitely going to label us as socialists. Yes. If we're not careful, it might stick. What we've got to say is we're not socialists. That's what I keep telling Mayor Pete and everybody. Just say, we're not socialists. 
right? And yeah. yet, some for some reason, they resist. I well, don't know Senator why. Senator Sanders can't first. <laughs> yeah, for but he's the only one. Yes. But then the the other part of it is, uh, if you look at the midterms, Democrats picked up 40 Republican House seats, and in every one of those flips, the Democrat, the successful Democrat, did not embrace the Green New Deal and did not embrace Medicare for all. That's that's what we're going to need to do to beat Donald Trump, right? Those flipped states, those flipped districts, yeah. uh, were in swing states and swing districts that, that, that Trump won. And in each case, we've got to go out there by giving you know, the kitchen table issues a, a good job, make sure that we have skills training to make sure their kids get the good jobs as well. You know, make sure that they have healthcare they can afford, they're not going to go bankrupt if they get sick. You know, address climate change in a way that's meaningful and direct. These are the, the bread and butter issues that I think most moderates of both parties and, and independents, they care about the most, more than some of this much more idealistic Last solution. question. As president, would you continue to mint pennies, even knowing they cost more than a cent each to mint? You know, and I haven't, you're the second person in, in the last 48 hours has asked me this, so you must, have, you must be creating a ripple. Trying um, to. Exactly. Uh, I'd have to see what it costs. And mm -hmm. I love a penny, right? Uh, my father taught me I collected pennies my uh -huh. my entire childhood. But back then they were worth like four or five cents with inflation. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, as long as the cost is not too much, I don't mind keeping some pennies in circulation. I also recognize the expense to businesses and to everybody to have to be counting pennies. In my restaurant business, we rounded down every receipt so there were, no one ever got pennies in change just because it's too big a pain in the neck and we were willing to lose a couple pennies just to, for the facility, for the ease. Governor Hickenlooper, thank you so much for your time. You bet, anytime. And now the spiel. I do think it's true that we bond not so much over our loves, but our hates. Yeah, 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 you like Arrested Development. We all like Arrested Development. But can we agree? MASH, a little overrated, kind of preachy. Yes? All right, friend for life. Now, as far as dislikes go, it's easier to dislike or even better to dismiss the culture that isn't of your generation. And this is, I think, for three reasons. One, we weren't caught up in the hype the first time. A lot of TV and music was just on. It was what was on, and you became habituated to it. You didn't have to think it was good. Think, the verb think. There was no thinking involved. You just accepted it. Two, the value of distance. Distance helps with judgment. So if it's not of your generation, you could look at it a little more clear-eyed. And three, and this last one is a little bit of a criticism of all of us, and it's not really based on uh, discernment and taste, but maybe, maybe it is true. It certainly is true that we're a bit more resistant to things that aren't of our culture or our time. We shouldn't be, but we are. Side note, similar. What, what it reminds me is, of is this. It was in Iowa at the fair, and there were a bunch of reporters around trying to uh, interview the candidates. And there was one, I think, CNN in bed. She's about twenty-five, woman, really nice, and people were talking about. 
Oh, how hard it must be for Cory Booker to eat at the fair since he's a vegan and everything's beef and so forth. And I said, oh, you know, I once did a piece on Dennis Kucinich during the Wisconsin primary. He's a vegan. He would go around to all these dairy farms and cheese shops and kind of avoid tasting anything. And she said, who? And I said, Dennis Kucinich. He was a short guy, mayor of Cleveland, little to the left of Bernie. He actually invented the Department of Peace, which is Marianne's thing these days. Nope, never heard of him. I said, yeah, it was during the 2004 campaign. She's like, well, I was in the fourth grade. I get it. I get it. But it doesn't change the fact that he did run for president. I mean, Dennis Kucinich got 40 delegates out of the 3,300 or so awarded. And when I was 12, I knew who Alan Cranston was. This guy came in eighth. Anyway, when I was 12, I also knew that the banana splits sucked. Digression over, by the way. We're into the main part of the spiel about taste and hating things. The banana splits. A show for kids that did feature a fine, fine theme song. The Banana Splits were part of the Sid and Marty Croft Nightmare Puppet Show. That wasn't the official name, but that's how it acted. The Banana Splits were off the air a year or two before I was born, but they brought them back. They kept pumping them at me, and I knew of them. I gotta say, I was repelled by them. I was rightly repelled. Sid and Marty Croft were an answer to a question, what if instead of being touched by magic and genius, Jim Henson was driven by cynicism and hooch? Okay, maybe Sid and Marty were just doing the best they could with their budget, bringing us the banana splits and Sigmund and the sea monster and a guy named H.R. Puffin Stuff, who was kind of an anthropomorphized Pac-Man with legs. Puffin Stuff, also like the banana splits, had a decent theme song, which was definitely where the budget was spent, not on the puppets. H.R. Puffin Stuff, who's your friend when things get rough? H.R. Puffin Stuff, can't do a little because he can't do enough. Actually, when I say good theme song, good chorus of the theme song, then it gets really didactic. Not the boat belonged to a kooky old witch who had in mind the flute to snitch. From her broom broom in the sky, she watched her plans materialize. She waved her wand. The beautiful boat was gone. The skies grew dark, the sea grew rough, and the boat sailed on and on and on and on and on and on. And on. A witch who had in her mind the flute to snitch. The word, you know, is snatch, not snitch. But snitch rhymes and snatch didn't, so who cares? Kids are stupid. We'll pretend the word is snitch. We'll play that in the front of every episode that millions of kids watch. We'll just teach millions, maybe an entire generation, the wrong word. Oh, and by the way, one reason I say the rest of the song is okay is that they essentially stole it from Paul Simon, feeling groovy. And they had to actually credit him in later years. Looking for fun and feeling groovy. Anyway, I talk about these terrible shows, and Puffin Stuff was on in reruns when I was a kid, and I was exposed to him, but I do it to point out that I did not like them. They were ubiquitous, they were meant to be enticing, or at least unavoidable, and I made a conscious choice, an early critical choice not to like them. I could not be prouder of my choice. I don't get off on the nostalgia of the shared media experience. Oh, you were this age, I was that age. Must mean that we remember where we were when Tiger knocked over the house of cards. And yes, Brady Bunch I allowed in. That was suboptimal entertainment that I did like. But the stuff I sniffed out and said, this actually sucks. I discerned that this sucks. Man, that is a real mark of pride. 
Also in that category for me, Speed Buggy, in fact, most of Hanna-Barbera, the Transformers. Oh, God, did I think they were terrible. A little later, 90210 nailed that. And I technically may be too old to take credit for loathing Saved by the Bell, but I loathe Saved by the Bell. Full House, by the way, is just as awful, but I get no points. I was older. I could judge that from the distance of experience. And the banana splits, not a part of my childhood that I ever thought to embrace. And yet today they are back. This time, are you ready? As a horror movie. Who's excited to see the banana splits? Rebecca, I'm canceling the show. What? Hey, kids, put on your happiest faces because the Banana Split Show is about to begin. Deadline Hollywood headlined the news, trippy 1960s kids show returns as horror project. Yes, it's trippy, meaning it's weird, but not weird as the opposite of conventional, weird as the opposite of well-executed. The following properties in our society have been dubbed creepy. The Polar Express, that trailer for Cats, the Philadelphia Flyers mascot Gritty, Dateline voiceover guy Keith Morrison, and Phil and Sales. But none of them deserve a horror film. I guess I'm in that demo or that Venn diagram for remembering the banana splits as an entity, so their intellectual property means something to me, but also being eager to resurrect them in a way that plays on their obvious flaws. I would say there is no such Venn diagram. There is no such demographic. And the creepy, happy-seeming, big, furry thing that's actually out to kill you, it's already been done, Death to Smoochie, Toy Story 3. The banana splits do not lend themselves to horror. They lend themselves to horrible. Now, let me tell you, here's my idea. A reboot of 90210, but all the original casts we reveal in episode three or four, all zombies. And that is the idea that could save that straightforward, boring reboot that they are doing. Thank you. I just rescued your show. Snitched it from the trash heap of TV history. And that's it for today's show. The Gist was produced by a guy who's a kidder. Perhaps you know him as Daniel Schritter. The other producer is not my enemy. He's a guy who goes by Pierre Bienemy. Now, I have to tell you, I am off tomorrow. I'll be back Friday. But for one day, one day only, The Gist brings you socialism. Lots of socialism in the form of former Gist guest Sean McElwee of Data for Progress. He is pushing America to the left. And tomorrow he'll be taking The Gist with him. If you sometimes listen on Overcast or sometimes listen on Stitcher, I recommend a single player for you tomorrow. Take that whiskey straight up. That's right. He's going to abolish ice as Sean McElwee hosts tomorrow. The gist. We're about the future, not the pissed. Doom Peru, 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 and thanks for listening.